Let me just uh, pray. Father God, uh, do give us some insight into the Reformation and allow us to understand a little bit about our heritage. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, yesterday I went golfing with uh, Fritz, actually, in the afternoon, and he asked me what I was going to say, and he was very complimentary and kind, so I don't know how this actually resulted, but all day long in the afternoon I kept thinking, I don't really know what I'm going to say. I've been working on a message for a long time, and then at uh, literally one in the morning I woke up and I said, I hate my message. So from one to three in the night... I reoriented my message, got up at four, and wrote a different message. So I don't know that this is going to go all that well. (laughs) Let me just uh, talk about the Reformation. I would guess that most of you, unless you grew up in a private school or were a Reformation history major, you probably have had very little exposure. You've heard the word Reformation. You know a little bit about it. But my guess is that you, like most Americans, know very little. It actually is my undergraduate degree. I'm a Reformation history major, which means I know a little bit more, but not much more than you. And as I think of the Reformation, we often, as historians, say something like this. We we give a date. In this case, we say October 3rd. 31st, 1517, Dr. Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis to the Wittenberg German door. And so we believe that the Reformation begins on that day, but in fact it doesn't. At the very least, the Reformation begins in the 1300s, and it really doesn't culminate until the Council of Trent in 1546. But I want to argue tonight that the Reformation really begins at the moment in which we have Matthew chapter 16, 13 to 18. Now, if you know anything about this text, we are in Caesarea Maritima. We are at the foot of Mount Hermon. We are in Israel. It's called Banias or Caesarea Maritima. And Jesus makes a statement that has caused all sorts of division in the church. He says to the disciples, who do the people say that I am? And really, the answers given are outstanding. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah. Now think about those answers. They're they're really outstanding. John the Baptist is the forerunner to Christ. In Mark 1, 5, it says that the whole Judean countryside came down to the Dead Sea to be baptized. They're going like 20 to 30 miles each way, like 6,500 vertical feet in difference because, you know, Jerusalem is 2,600 feet above sea level and the Dead Sea is like 4,000 feet below sea level. And if the entire Judean countryside only means like a third of the people, that's like 300,000 people that have come down to be baptized by John and his disciples. So he's kind of a big deal. So that's really a good answer. The next answer is Elijah. That's also an outstanding answer. You remember in the Old Testament, we only have two people who really don't die. Well, you have Enoch. I'm not going to count him. And then you have 
Moses who dies, but God does something really unique. He keeps the body because he needs it again in Revelation 11. And you have Elijah. And in the last book of the Old Testament in Malachi, it says that Elijah is coming back. And so to say that Jesus is Elijah looks at the totality of Scripture, 2 Kings 1, where he doesn't die. It looks at Revelation 11, where he's coming back as one of the two witnesses. It's a great answer. Jeremiah is a little more difficult. But if you know the Apocrypha, and by the way, the Apocrypha is not just a body of literature. It's from 200 BC to 100 AD, and nobody agrees on what's in the Apocrypha. One of the apocryphal books that doesn't make most apocryphal canons is 2 Ezra chapter 2. And in 2 Ezra chapter 2, it says that Jeremiah is coming back. And so when Jesus says, who do the people say that I am, they've given outstanding answers. But then Jesus goes a little further. He says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And you remember what Jesus said. This was not revealed to you by man, but my father in heaven. You are bar Jesus, son of Jonah. And this has been given to you by God. And then he says, you are rock. You are Petros. And on this rock, Petra, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Now, I'm going to give a big explanation of this next October in Israel. I hope you can join Sam and me there. It will have the backdrop of the actual place in which Jesus talks about it. But suffice it to say, he calls Peter a male name, Petros, but he says that the rock in which the church is built is Petra, it's feminine. I don't think it's possible that the rock that the church is built on is Peter. I think it's the confession. What's the confession? You are the Christ. That is what the church is built on. It is built on Christ. But if you know anything about that passage, evangelicals, Catholics, Lutherans, we have been arguing over this passage forever because at least in one or more traditions, the idea is that Peter is the first vicar of Christ, the Pope, and the 266 popes that we've had ever since then, all the way up to Francis I, are in a line from Peter. Well, I've already told you I don't think it's possible that Peter is the Petra because that would be calling him feminine, and you really can't do that in a Romance language. But there's another reason I don't think that is accurate. I don't think it's at all accurate because you have to understand that in the first 300 years of the church, you really have no vicar. We have gone back, revisionist history, and identified the first dozen or two dozen popes, but they would never have known that they were popes. Understand that we have the Roman Empire. And if you're in a house church, you're in the Appian Way, 12 miles outside of Rome. You are in the catechisms underneath. And if you happen to lead that, 
You're only going to lead one house church, not multiple churches. There is no hierarchy going on in the Roman Empire outside of a local church. It's revisionist history to believe that for the first 250 years, we actually can say, well, that's the first pope, that's the second, that's the third, that's the fourth. It's just not possible. And so I think the Reformation actually goes back to Matthew 16 because we have a number of reformers from the 1300s to the 1500s who are beginning to say there is no valid reason to believe in the vicar, the representation of Christ. Now allow me to give just a thumbnail sketch of history. The Roman Empire is from about 100 BC to 300 AD. And it really is a tightly controlled arena over the church. And so, like in Jerusalem, you have 420 synagogues during this period of time. They're really not attached one to another. Rome allows them to be separate synagogues, but no ruling over all of them. But that all changes around 325. In 325, we get Constantine. Emperor Constantine, whose mother is St. Helena. More about her in a moment. Now think about Constantine. If you've ever heard history, sometimes we get very loose and we say, Constantine is the first Christian emperor. He's not Christian by any standard. Catholic, Lutheran, Protestant. He is not a Christ follower. What he does is adds Jesus to his pantheon in fact, his favorite god is Hercules, and remains so. But what Constantine does is he issues the Edict of Milan, Milan today in Italy. And the Edict of Milan legalizes the proselytization. For the first time in 325 AD, you can now lead others to Christ legally. And you can have a hierarchy within the church. And so the church actually thrives from about 325 to about 476. These historians, you know them, they're always giving us exact dates. So they tell us in 476 we have the fall of Rome. Well, I don't know, probably 100 years led up to the fall of Rome. But from 476 to 1000 AD, you have the early Middle Ages. Some of you call them the Dark Ages. It's a time where illiteracy is reigning. There are so many good things going on in the church. So many people are coming to Christ. But the hierarchy of the church in the early Middle Ages is a disaster. And this is going to impact the Reformation. Because you're going to see a pattern. Almost at all points in the first 1500 years, the highest levels of leadership are a mess. Even though there is a lot of good things going on in local congregations. So from about 476 to 1,000, we have a lot of superstition. We're burning a lot of witches. We're talking a lot about demons, and we're doing book burnings. Illiteracy is rampant, and we're starting to get into the bubonic stuff. That really won't happen until the 1300s, but we got a lot of disease, and a lot of people, <coughs> and a lot of people are dying. Once we hit 1,000, that's the 11th century to the 13th century, something horrific happens. 
we have the Crusades. The Crusades was started by Pope Urban II, and it took place in 1095. And what he wants to do is he wants to retake the Holy Lands and Turkey for Christianity. He wants to drive out the Muslim Turks. So how do you get individuals who really have a lousy life in Europe anyway, but how do you get them to up the ante of a lousy life to march across Europe, to go to the Middle East, to take on Muslim armies. How do you do that? Well, Urban II does something that had never been done before. He introduces indulgences. Indulgences are the treasury of merit. They're the good works that are left behind by those who go to heaven and they're placed in the treasury of the vicar of Rome, the Pope. He has all the extra works. He's the only one that knows how many extra good works he has. And for the first time, we have not had indulgences ever before 1095. We're introduced to indulgences. Now, he's not selling them. That'll come later. What he's doing is this. Most of you are a mess. Sorry. Just keeping it real. Now, coming out of the dark ages, we learned from the church, kind of superstitious, that very few people go to heaven, very few people go to hell. They go to this place that the Bible doesn't talk about by, called purgatory. And the average length of stay in purgatory, it was actually codified in the dark ages. It's 1,902,200 years. Now, some of you, especially Smurfs, you're like in the three million category. You're going to be there forever and ever and ever. It's just what's going to happen. So what he says, I'm sorry. <laughs> the lights are in my face and you're the only people I can see out there. <laughs> sit in the back next time. How dare you sit in the front? How foolish. So what is happening is he's saying, do you not hear your loved ones? They're suffering in purgatory. You're going to be suffering in purgatory. But if you will go to the Holy Land and you will drive out the Muslims and return the Holy Land to Christianity, we'll lop off a half a million years for just 18 months. And they keep upping the ante and upping the ante and upping the ante. And, and the first of maybe eight or nine major crusades, nobody really agrees, sends about 25,000 people. It gets so bad that we actually have a crusade of children and a secondary crusade of children. And the idea, what is being said, is God will never turn down children. So they send thousands of children that become slaves or murdered by the Muslims. It's horrific. It is such poor judgment. And this is the highest levels of leadership. And we have eight or nine of these things to endure from about 1,000 to 1,200. Well, finally, we get to the 1300s, and we have the Renaissance. And the Renaissance is the Enlightenment. And this is really, in some ways, the high point of the arts. And the church is all engaged in the arts. And there's high literacy. There's a lot going on that's good. And in the local congregations, wonderful things are happening in the church. People are coming to Christ. People are discipled in Christ. But again, the leadership, not so good. And so from 1378 
to 1417. We can't even decide who the Pope is. So we elect a Pope. Uh, his name is Alexander. And Alexander is kind of the guy who just outlasts everyone else. The Italians don't really know him, but he's Italian. The French hate it because they want a Frenchman. But everybody gets their champion. Everyone's champion is shot down except this dude. And so he becomes the Pope. And he's, he's incompetent. He's incompetent no matter who you are. So everybody can't stand him as the Pope. And so the French say enough of this. And they start another papacy in Avignon. You want the papacy in your country because if you have a standing army, you want to be looking over the papacy because you want to kind of let the Pope know that if he doesn't do what you want, eh, your army might attack. So now we have two popes. We have one in Rome and one in Avignon, France. Well, a little while later, nobody can agree. And so the group up in Pisa today in Italy, they say, well, we ought to get our own pope. And now we have three popes and three standing armies, because popes have armies, who go to war against one another, and people are dying to decide who the pope is. This is called the Great Western Schism. And it's not just a one-off. We have lots of bad popes. We have some good ones. We have some great ones. The Gregories are outstanding, but they're a little earlier on. But we have some really bad popes. I mentioned on Sunday, Alexander VI, Rodrigo Borgia. He is the vilest of the vile popes, 1492 to 1503. I mentioned that he had 10 mistresses, sired children with five of his 10 mistresses, actually sired his grandchild with his daughter. I mean, that is really messed up. And I briefly mentioned on Sunday that he bought the office. That's not a one-off. He did buy the office. We have a guy named Brennard, and we have his diary, and he was in charge of collecting money for the papacy. And he tells us that the king of France gave 200,000 ducats little gold trade coin. And the king of Genoa gives 100,000 ducats, 300,000. But Alexander, he shows up with four loads, mule loads of silver, and he buys the papacy. It is not a one-off. This is what's going on. And because of this, we have all the way from the time of Matthew 16, a number of individuals saying, there's so many good things going on in the church. People are coming to Christ. People are discipled in Christ. But we have had a lot of hierarchy that has not gone as well as we would like. And it's into this setting that we meet Martin Luther. Let me tell you about Martin Luther. His name is actually Martin Luder, which means female dog, but that's not the right word. It's a nasty word. So he changes his name to Martin Luther, which means the army of the people. He was abused as a child. His father was quite violent 
and beat him up on many occasions. His father was a self-made man and had copper mines. And so he grew up working the mines, but he was a brilliant individual. And by age 22, he had been to the University of Alfort in what today is Germany and earned a bachelor's degree and a master's degree. And he was working on a JD, a doctor of jurisprudence. His father decided that he would run the family business and do all of the law things. But Dr. Luther, not yet a doctor, but Luther is worried about his soul. He's worried that he has not done enough, worked enough, had enough good actions to outweigh his bad to get to heaven. And so one day when he was back home from the University of Affert for a short visit, he was heading back to the university. Suddenly, while he was out in the field, a huge storm came up and he ran under a tree because that's what they tell you to do, right? With a lightning storm. And a lightning bolt hit right near him and literally threw him back. And he cried out, Saint Anne, that's the mother of Jesus, Saint Anne, I'll become a monk if you save me. So here we have like, you know, somebody in a bad situation making a promise, except Luther keeps it. Two weeks later, he enters the Black Cloister, Augustinian Monastery, and Erfurt. His father is enraged and literally will not speak to Luther for two more years. The next time his father will speak to him is the first time Luther will do the Eucharist communion. And until 1965, uh, lay people were not allowed the cup. You were only allowed the bread because you might spill the blood of Christ. Well, Luther's father shows up for his first Eucharist and his hand is shaking and he spills the cup and his father won't talk to him for two more years. While he's in the Black Cloister Monastery, he tries to earn his salvation. He is so worried about his soul. He does not know grace. He does not know faith. He does not know Christ. And so he fashions a whip and he beats himself on a regular basis, beating the sin out of himself. He won't sleep on his bed, but in effort, Germany, in the cold of winter, he will sleep on the stone floor without a blanket, punishing himself. Every day he'll head to the confessional booth and all the rest of the monks will fight over who has to go on the other side. Because they know if you get on the other side to listen to Luther's confessions, it's like the rest of the day. And they finally make a rule, unless you have a big sin, you can't go in there. And he makes the statement, if you could earn salvation as a monk, I would have earned it. Every monk will agree. But he's tormenting himself. And there's a man named Johann Stupitz. Johann Stupitz is the spiritual vicar of the Augustinian black cloister. And he's a believer in Christ. And he says, Luther, Luther, believe in Jesus. Fall upon the mercy of Jesus. Accept the grace of Jesus. Allow his blood to be the atoning sacrifice. <coughs> 
the atoning sacrifice of your sin. And Luther said, well, how do I know? How do I know that you can receive salvation just by faith in God's grace? And Johann Stupid says, read the Bible. And he starts reading the Bible. And the passage that hits him the most is Romans 1.17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from first to last. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the righteousness of God is revealed by faith first to last. Where do you not have faith? You have it in the beginning. You have it in the end. It doesn't mention anything else. The just shall live by faith. And so Dr. Luther, who is now studying Galatians and Romans, has an opportunity to go to Rome. He's a church insider. He's a priest. He's a monk. He's a professor, or will soon be, a professor of sacred theology at the Catholic University of Wittenberg. And he goes to Rome. It is his dream. He will only get there once. And when he gets to Rome, he sees corruption and filth at the highest levels of the church. And it breaks his heart. And he goes to the Pope's church. Now, if I were to ask you today, what is the Pope's church? I'm willing to bet that most of you would say St. Peter's Basilica. That wouldn't be correct. Now, a basilica is what you get if you're a big city. You get one. No city gets two, but Rome gets four. How is that fair? So they have St. Paul outside the wall, Mary Major, St. Peter's, and St. John Lateran. St. Peter's is really the cardinal's pope, or the cardinal's church. But St. John Lateran is the pope's. I've gone to a number of services there in Latin, each time hoping the pope will show up. Not so yet. Hasn't happened. But I'm still going to try. So he goes to St. John Lateran, and there's something called the Scalia Sancta, which is Latin for holy stairs. It used to be in St. John Lateran, there used to be three sets of stairs. There's actually 28 stairs, and you go up the stairs on your knees. And you got to pay an indulgence because <coughs> indulgences have returned. But now we're not giving them away, we're selling them because the Pope, Pope Leo X, wants to expand. St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican. So he has got people going all over the Roman Empire selling indulgences, the treasury of merits. Now, if you go up these stairs, I've done it a couple times, it's really painful. Don't get behind slow old people because it's like 30 minutes on stone stairs. I'm sorry. I always get behind the oldest person there. And the stones are actually, thank you, St. Helena, Constantine's mother. They're from Jerusalem. They're from the place where Pilate whipped Jesus. And there's actually some blood stains, purportedly from Christ. I'm, I don't think they, they are, but I think the stones are legit. They're real. And you go up, and each of the 28 steps, after you've paid the indulgence, removes 15 years from purgatory. So 420 years of purgatory are removed just for going up the stairs on your knees. 
But instead of praying, Dr. Luther is citing Romans 1.17. The just shall live by faith. By faith. The just shall live by faith. Faith from first to last. Faith from... And God opens his heart. And he realizes that he has been trying to earn salvation. For salvation is by faith. It is by grace. And so he comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. A little bit later when the Pope's representative gets to Wittenberg to sell indulgences, Dr. Luther, who now is a very influential individual, will not allow indulgences to be sold in Wittenberg. Well, other Germanic city-states say, hey, we don't want them sold here either. And so that begins to spread not only in the Germanic states, but all across Europe. And the Pope is not getting the money for the treasury, and he's really tough. He's really ticked. By now, we have Martin Luther wanting to reform the church. He's a church insider. He doesn't want to split the church. He's a monk. He's a priest. He's a professor of sacred theology. So he writes 95 theses. He writes them in Latin, the language of scholars. He nails them to the Wittenberg church door, which is kind of like where scholars will come and cross something out and add something. But commoners don't learn Latin. He just wants to reform the church. But almost immediately, what he wrote in Latin is translated into German and French and Spanish and Italian and spreads all over Europe. And it turns out there are a lot of people who want to reform the church because although great things are happening in the church at the top levels, many have had enough of the church. And so the protest, that's what Protestant means, begins. Well, we got to nip this in the bud, said Pope Leo X. And so he sits on Peter's throne. The last pope to do that was Paul VI in 1965. It hasn't happened since. And when you sit on Peter's throne and you utter something because of something called diverbum, uh, what you say is not scripture but equal to scripture. There are two streams, scripture and the church from papal bulls. And they're equal in authority. And from the throne he writes, a papal bull, exerge domine, arise, O Lord. And he declares that Dr. Luther is a boar, B-O-A-R, in the Lord's vineyard, trampling the Lord's vineyard. And he puts him on trial in Worms in 1520. He gives him 60 days to recant. Or he will be put to death. Of course, he goes into hiding. He will translate the Bible. And then he will get back to Wittenberg where he's protected by a prince. And the Reformation is born. I think it goes all the way back to Matthew 16. The Reformation kind of has five... <coughs> Sorry. The Reformation kind of has five phrases... We call them the solas, and the first one, <laughs> I mark these so carefully, the sola scriptura, scripture alone, Psalm 119, 96, I have seen the limit to all perfections, but your commands are exceedingly broad. 
2 Peter 1.21, God carried men along so that what is recorded is exactly what God desires. The Reformation believes that Scripture is our authority. Second, we have sola Christus, Christ alone. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's not in works. It's not in good efforts. Salvation is in Christ alone. Ephesians 1, 7 puts it this way. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Third, we have sola fide. If I can find what I did with sola fide. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, he, the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is the work of Christ that we place our faith in. Philippians 3.9 And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Fourth, we have sola gratia, grace. And really what this says is that you and I are incapable of saving ourselves. Romans 3, 10 to 12. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Verse 23, for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And finally, soli deo gloria, to God's glory alone. This is what we ought to live for. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Or Romans 11, 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Sola Scriptura. Scripture is our authority. Solus Christus. Salvation is only in Christ. Sola Fide. It's only by faith in Christ. Sola Gratia. It is only by grace that we are saved and solus deo gloria. We are to live for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I thank you for the Reformation and what it means to us. So many aspects to it. And yet, Lord... We want to rest on those five souls, those five alones. Your scripture is our authority. Your son is our savior. Faith is the means. Grace is the gift. And the act of worship is to live 
for the glory of you. May this be true in our lives. In the name of Christ, amen. Thanks.